Every facet of the fashion industry, including the path forward for designers, is changing. In this series, we ask those on the front lines to speak candidly about the future of fashion. I'm Hilary Milnes, and this is The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with Klarna, the leading global payments and shopping service that lets shoppers buy now and pay later. Visit Klarna.com to find out how you can increase your average order value, drive traffic, and create a smooth checkout experience by adding a buy now, pay later option to your website. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes. Fashion is in some ways broken. The old barriers to entry no longer work the way that they used to, and designer brands risk growing too big, too fast, or never making their mark. After several brand iterations, designer Scott Sternberg has learned how to sustainably lead a fashion brand. He's the founder of Entire World, and we're thrilled to have him on the show this week. Welcome, Scott. Happy to be here, Hillary. Thanks. Of course. So can you just tell us a bit about the last six months for you from a, from a business perspective? Um, I know Entire World specializes in sweatsuits, so you guys were kind of in the right place at the right time. Yeah, totally. It's been a great six months from a business perspective. We've experienced an incredible amount of growth. You know, we launched in in April of 2018, not as a loungewear brand or a sweatsuit brand, but very much with values around product that is comfortable and cozy and a brand message that is warm and inviting and communal and something that was kind of pure and optimistic and all that. And with no plans of a pandemic happening. But once it hit, um, we were just well-positioned from a brand perspective and certainly well-positioned from a product-focused perspective. That we've been, Our sweatsuit has been our hero product since, since fall of 2018. Um, so we're sort of well-established as sort of a leader in that, in that category. And we were really well set up on the supply chain side, believe it or not, despite COVID, because sweats... In addition to our keys and socks and undies, which are all key items that really make up the bulk of the revenue, um, we were well positioned with a lot of inventory in January before Chinese New Year, which was really that inflection point with COVID in China, where uh, after that point, that's where things really shut down. So it's been an incredibly difficult year, incredibly odd year, a very challenging year in terms of um, communicating and uh, marketing and, and reaching customers and all that. But from a sales perspective, it's been it's been wild. It's been great. No, I'm sure. And and can you talk a bit about that communication aspect of it? I, I think that was a big question for fashion brands throughout this is, um, how do you talk to customers uh, during such a, a difficult and, and crazy time? And I, and I want to dig into the supply chain and everything, but, you know, as it was all unfolding, you know, as a brand, you're still you're still up and running. You're seeing more traffic. Um, you know, I'm sure. And then, uh, you know, wh- what what did that marketing look like from the communication perspective? Sure. You know, my my thing has always been talking to your customers. You're just you're talking to your customers, or I'm talking to the customer. Uh, me, Scott. When I started Band of Outsiders, my the first brand I started that really uh, got my feet wet in fashion and was really just like almost an experiment that went quite well for a while. Um, one main goal that I had, very clear goal, was to create a fashion brand that didn't feel like other fashion brands. And there are many parts of that, but one of them was a level of what a lot of people like to call authenticity, 
um, what I like to call candor, um, a brand with a real voice that gave the brand and me a platform to really talk to people, almost like one-to-many, certainly, but almost one-to-one. So my approach has always been candor and honesty and and humor where appropriate. And so right from the get-go, the freak out, you know, in in early March, mid-March, I knew we had to sort of run a promotion on the sweats because we needed to just bring in revenue. We needed cash. And I knew the best way to do that was just to talk really frankly to the customer. And we sent out an email that I composed in a few minutes, really, uh, to, to sort of kick off the sale. And it was just a letter just sort of sharing my own anxiety and uh, just talking really honestly about about this sort of moment of uncertainty, this freak out, and connecting that to our clothes in a really authentic way, you know, because they are cozy and comfy and, and sort of happy. And what else would somebody want at that time? So that's always been my approach. Yeah. And, and you really set up Entire World to be a brand that, you know, you had that control over the messaging, the control over, like you mentioned, um, the operations on the back end. Um, can you talk a bit about the differences between Entire World and Band of Outsiders and, you know, the motivation that went into the decision to build Entire World the way that you did? Sure. You know, at their core, they're, they're kind of similar uh, in terms of, to, to some extent, the spirit of the product. You know, it's this 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 classic American sportswear approach. But Band of Outsiders was much more about luxury and fashion and ideas and novelty. And it was a it was a conceptual brand that was a preppy brand about preppy clothes. And Entire World was, and it and it operated within the fashion system completely. It was a wholesale business model, and that really drove uh, some of the product design and merchandising. It certainly drove the price point. It drove our supply chain, our sort of annual calendar, all of that. And whereas Entire World is really not bound to any of those uh, constraints or that system at all. Entire World is part of this new crop of consumer brands, specifically fashion and apparel brands, that were trying to really create a new structure, a new cycle of desire that's not necessarily a seasonal, that is not about this um, system of gatekeepers, retailers, and editors kind of filtering what you see and when you see it um, and really reflects what I think is where things have gone or are going, although some of those gatekeepers haven't quite caught up to it yet, which is to say with the proliferation of e-commerce and social media, the role of that gatekeeper is really in question. So as a brand when I was starting Entire World, I had all these things I wanted to do that were different from Band of Outsiders. So I wanted to do clothes you wore every day, clothes that were very accessible in terms of price point, uh, but also made really well and kind of making these simple things very special and wanted them to be non-seasonal. I didn't want to sit on all this inventory, all that stuff. But it was all predicated on this idea that the consumer was who we were always talking to, that we weren't selling to a store, we weren't selling to a magazine, we, the ideas were always meant and the product for exactly the way the business model says direct to consumer. And I think that is just a, a very modern reflection, very accurate reflection of how the world works now. Right. And and so take us back to, to Band of Outsiders. You had the similar ethos in mind, essentially. Um, 
How did all of these things that were set up from the business standpoint, the seasonality, the wholesale partners, you know, how did that affect you as a designer? And how did that change the the outcome and the shape of the brand? For band, you know, we were just playing by the rules. And I have to say that system, when it really worked, was quite helpful in terms of, on so many levels, in terms of launching a brand, in terms of positioning the brand, really. That's where wholesale, I think, is most powerful. Other than making people aware of your brand, they do that by creating adjacencies with your brand so people can understand where you set in the architecture of uh, fashion brands, you know, um, whether that's based on price point or aesthetic or whatever it is. So like if Essence carries you, you're kind of dark and street and goth. And if Net-A-Porte carries you, you're a little bit more London street style or whatever it is. And then whatever part of that site you're on, or if you're in an actual store, what floor you're on and what brands you're next to, it's, it's a really powerful tool. So wholesale immediately, and this was not, uh, you know, by intent, put Band of Outsiders into a designer category, kind of upper end contemporary, but really designer category. That's where we sold at Barney's at the beginning. We sold to Jeffrey uh, for years. So that immediately started to inform, the price was the price. So I'd sort of set that sort of bottoms up from the cost, but, and knowing that it worked within the market. But that really immediately sort of start, starts to inform everything from, from a pricing perspective, a design perspective, cadence of deliveries, all of that. It gives you structure. And then within that structure, there's room for, you know, there's totally room for creativity and, and your own ideas and your own take on everything. Um, but you are bound to the markets and you're bound to the system that you have to invest a lot of time and money into uh, that eventually becomes fashion week. So when you start showing, so when you, you know, you start putting more money into market weeks, which is to say, I'm going to do a presentation or a fashion show that starts to inform the design of the product because you want to communicate. If you're going to do that, if you're going to have a show, you should probably be, it's not really about the details of the clothes, a show. They're about ideas and about being part of the larger fashion conversation or cultural conversation. Suddenly, the design of the clothes becomes more exaggerated or more hyper-focused on one idea of a season or a delivery or whatever. So it really, being embraced by that system is wonderful because, I mean, we were a I started, I say we, like I started in my living room and in a small apartment, just making shirts and ties. I was a one man show for like three years, but within that three years, we were already selling in Colette and United Arrows and Tokyo and Barney's and, you know, all these fantastic stores. We were like a, like a small, but like a global brand. But, uh, you know, it immediately sort of took what was meant to be a small menswear project that was dipping my toes in the water of fashion and, and then entrepreneurship into a fashion brand that was, uh, you know, sort of swept up in this. And it wasn't all bad. It was kind of, there was a lot of great stuff about it, you know, and, and the rigor of having to constantly produce new stuff from a creative perspective, after a while, it does become really uh, exhausting for sure. Cause it just feels like a hamster wheel, but it also is like kind of a fun, sick, uh, masochistic challenge to always be, you know, you finish a show and you've already, your, your pre-collection is already like midway through for the next time. And you sort of already started on your next collection. If you're doing things, you know, on calendar or whatever, 
And sometimes it breeds exhaustion and sometimes it breeds innovation and exciting ideas um, and it pushes you forward. But it was, uh, this was a brand that I started. I was just putting one foot in front of the next and it was embraced and, you know, I'm very grateful for that by the fashion world, by the editors, magazines, stores, all that stuff. And just kind of became that type of brand. Right. And and I think, you know, in, in pointing out the, it's almost like the highs and the lows of the model. There are, it can really propel a small designer brand like yours to the global stage, like you mentioned, but there are definitely drawbacks there. It seems like that, it, it puts a brand of your size in a hard position. Would you say, like, if you were to try to drill down, you know, one of the, one of the problems that then brought you to where you are today, it seems like the there's not that much room anymore for a small to mid-sized, you know, high, higher end designer fashion brand. Do, do you feel like that's still the case right now? It's, it's, it's hard to say. I, mean, I think there's always room for that. The question is the longevity of a, what is the longevity of a fashion brand? And can a small independent organization, did they have the resources to, kind of weather the ups and downs that are inevitable because fashion is a cycle. You know, if it's about buzz and you can't always be buzzy and, you know, do they, can you, do you have, can you, can you do that? And if you're an LVMH brand, if you notice over the last 10 years, they're cycling designers in every three or four years, depending on which of the companies, that's how long those contracts are. And they're doing that not because they're bored, they're doing that because they know the consumer gets bored and they're taking what is an infrastructure, a brand infrastructure, global network of stores, staff, um, ateliers, you know, you name it. And just plugging in somebody new because the way fashion works is people move on to new things and things that we've created this monster, Right. You're creating desire all the time, and that's making the old stuff seem stale. Um, so for a small company, uh, you got to be really, really smart to build yourself in a way where you're investing just amount, the right amount in marketing, in, in product development. You're innovating at the right uh, pace. You're pulling back when you need to pull back. You're probably not having big leases, and you're sort of you're weathering the roller coaster of fashion over time. You look at a brand different from Caring or LVMH, where they're now basically just plugging in new designers to get new buzz. You look at a brand like Tommy Hilfiger, that really doesn't. That that's an interesting brand. That was a huge brand in the in the '90s, and then really lost its way in the U.S. But actually, is a bigger brand from a sales perspective, I believe, than it ever has been, because their sales primarily in Europe. And so that's a brand that had enormous private equity resources. Um, I think Apex bought them or PV, I forget who owns them, but they were, they were able to invest hundreds of millions of dollars probably in making this a big brand in Europe. And so they took the global stage and acknowledged, okay, it's losing heat in the U.S., so let's move it over to Europe or let's see what's happening in South America through a licensed partner or whatever it was. So... I think that to me, it's about the cycle of fashion and longevity and how you can you set a business model up so that um, you, you can last or, you know, 
the microcosm of it is you look at sort of like denim brands and what was happening to them in the mid-aughts where denim brands really became almost like private label. If you went into some of these factories in LA, um, you would see basically the, they were factory owned brands. They would just keep pumping them out and they would know that that's the way to do it. Don't invest in the brand because the consumer is always going to want a new hot fashion, uh, sorry, denim brand. So the really the, 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 don't even go for longevity. That shouldn't be the goal at all. The goal should just be newness. Um, it's a real trick because it's, we're creating the monster, right? We're creating this sort of unsustainable monster, unsustainable both in just like running a business, but also in terms of, you know, just like the environment and all that stuff. So it, it, it's a trick. We want people to keep buying stuff, but that means you have to give them something new, which means the old stuff is old. So in, in terms of building a sustainable business model for a fashion brand, the entire world is built off of the direct-to-consumer model. But, the, you know, I think over the years, there's been clear drawbacks on that side as well in terms of the financial stability because a lot of it has been VC-funded. Um, how did you yes. navigate whether or not to raise capital? I think it's almost created a similar problem where you have VC backers investing in fashion labels as if they are tech companies, oversized valuations, and then not that many exits to point to. So, you know, especially having your experience, how did you take all of that into consideration when looking at entire world? Yeah, totally. I knew I had to raise capital and I needed, you know, strategic partners, ultimately, whether they put capital in or not on the supply chain side to really invest in a lot of the fabric development that we were doing two years before we even launched. But I knew I needed a certain level of capital because we were starting, unlike Band of Outsiders, where I could just do it all out of my garage or living room or whatever, you know, we are, we're the whole cycle here, <laughs> supply chain to customer service. And payroll is always, your, at least from my experience, your biggest line item. And I needed to have a staff. I needed all of that. But I also knew I, I did meet with a couple of those VCs that at the time, you know, I was raising money about five years ago. We're, we're still in the, you know, outdoor voices hadn't started crashing yet, but they weren't getting where they were supposed to. I met with a lot of those people, Forerunner, Nick Brown, you know, and they're all perfectly nice people, but it could not have been more clear from meeting number one, that this is not a match because of their growth expectations which are really more, don't, they just don't align with fashion. You know, we make, are they, and they hardly align with physical products. They do align with beauty a little bit more because it's much more focused. It can grow much faster, and beauty is an acquisitive industry. Lauder, L'Oreal, they acquire. They don't really develop in-house. So there's, there's exit paths always, and there's quick exit paths. Whereas with fashion, there's just so, it's so narrow, the path to an exit. But yeah, I mean, you could just see the writing on the wall with that stuff. You could see how there's just no way Outdoor Voices is going to grow as fast as they need to. They're not investing in product development at all. They're investing in customer acquisition. What a, this makes no sense. How have they been around this long and they really only have one key product? Or looking at a company like Everlane that I don't, I don't really, I haven't seen their balance sheet, but they're quite big right now. And I don't think they're all that profitable. They just raised, I think they're almost a $200 million company. They just raised like 85 million bucks. They've done some amazing stuff. They've gotten themselves to a great point, And they really laid a lot of the groundwork for, um, you know, people, uh, a certain subset of millennials 
being comfortable and excited about buying clothes online. But it was clear that I needed capital. It was clear that that was the wrong capital. So it was clear that I was just going to be able to get very little and therefore be able to kind of grow not as fast, more slowly, which is a little painful, um, but ultimately more sustainable and smarter. What they talk about, VCs talk about product market fit. That's really what your seed round or pre-seed round is supposed to prove or disprove. And with with an application, with an app or something like that, it, you can do that really quick, low cost. Do people want the app? Great. If they do, the scale is like instant. You know, you don't have to go order fabric and dye it and cut and sell it. It's all, somebody can just download that code and you can just keep updating it and doing new versions and, and all that. With, with fashion, product market fit takes a couple of years because literally fit is something that takes a, a good year. And, you know, you have a size round. You, you have to figure out when you're buying inventory because we, you know, we own all of our inventory. We don't take orders. So if we're going to buy 10,000 of these sweats, like we need, we're doing that now, but that's after two years, two and a half years of data where we can say very confidently that we need this many extra larges, this many larges, this many smalls, et cetera. Um, and that these colors, you know, we should buy heavy into and, it's right to buy, you know, 300 bright pink. They'll, they'll, there's a customer there for it or whatever. So, you know, I think that I didn't realize just how difficult it would be to find capital. I mean, it's it's been painful because the flip side is like, so we're, we're really working towards profitability and we're going to hit break even Q, end of Q1, beginning of Q2 next year. And that's a big, that's a North Star for me. And it always has been. But that is antithetical and works against like growing the top line really fast. And the, the problem there is most investors, when your top line is where ours is at, they're like, eh, call us in a year. Call us in two years. You're too small. Keep proving yourself. You still need the money to get there. It's super challenging. I, no, no doubt about it. And as you're working toward profitability, looking at like the uh, typical direct-to-consumer model, obviously there's a reason that department stores and other wholesale partners have played such a role. It's because they have these vast audiences, like you mentioned, um, regarding Outdoor Voices and these other brands. Customer acquisition is, you know, the biggest thing because it is so expensive, but so critical. Uh, Do you see the direct-to-consumer model shifting back toward what fashion traditionally was? Is it now going to look like uh, almost a hybrid model where, I, and I think Entire World has sold with Nordstrom. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we did it as a special sort of bookended project where they invested a ton of media money and they gave us tons of space. And it was a big marketing project for us. But yeah, we happily sold to Nordstrom and we're part of that that program. And we sell to Mr. Porter regularly and they're a wonderful partner on the men's side. Talk about adjacencies. And they sell online, and we don't feel like it cannibalizes our business at all. It actually helps it. I think, not to cut you off, but I think everything is going to meld together. The consumer does not care if you're about the business model of your company, right? I really don't, I don't think they do. I think they want something exciting that they feel has value to them. I think they want to respond to something emotionally. That's what I always that's always driven me as a communications person and a product designer. But I, I think on the wholesale side, 
on the department store side, on the brands that sell there, on the direct to consumer side, I, I do think it all will start melding together just because it, it kind of has to. There's going to be more continued consolidation on the department store side. There just has to be. The fact that they've all lasted this long is incredible um, with e-commerce because they're all essentially offering the same product. And there's very little you can do to differentiate that when you're selling online. And I know just from my experience with Nordstrom, which was incredibly successful, the sell-through was through the roof. Most of that product was sold online. I think 60% was sold online. So, you know, I think on that end, you know, those department stores, their biggest asset is their real estate and certainly their customers and the community that they've created and the other brands that they they sell and, 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 and those adjacencies. But like, they're going to have to start flexing and leveraging those those uh, advantages in a different way, and in a way that companies like mine can can leverage them, and companies like maybe the Gap can leverage them. We were having problems getting you know people in the door, whatever it is, because we're all we're all we're all going to have to realign it to some extent. And just I don't think dogmatically like we're a direct to consumer company. I think we're design driven product company. We make stuff that you live in. We need to get more customers. We need to make more people aware of the brand. And we need to be profitable when we do that. And that across the board is a blended balance of high margin products and okay margin products, wholesale relationships that might sort of just be marketing driven, wholesale relationships that could end up taking a product category of mine and blowing it out and being quite profitable, like underwear or socks, which are we do wonderful quantities in, and you know these are categories I really believe in. That there's a white space to do something exciting and emotional and cool, um, and I'd love a partner to help blow that out more. To your point, the customer the customer doesn't know what you know. They don't care if it's a considered a direct to consumer company or a traditional fashion brand. Like that's not what they're thinking about. It's it's everything you just described. Yeah, I I, I don't think they're thinking about that at all. I think they're thinking in the same terms fashion is always, or unconsciously, they're being moved by the same things that have always moved fashion and fashion brands and or direct-to-consumer brands or whatever they are. But they're looking for their tribe and they're looking to, you know, uh, express their membership to that tribe and their individuality in contrast to that tribe. And they're looking for people who speak their language and brands who speak share their values and all that stuff the rest of it is just for us all us all to figure out right yeah and do you think that the the pandemic this entire year will actually be a catalyst for considerable change in in fashion and luxury fashion that feels like we almost have been on the precipice of for several years now i mean direct to consumer brands and the model has been uh, underway for for many years. Wholesale has clearly been struggling for many years. You look at you know Barney's, Neiman Marcus this year. What's happened? Do you see this as a turning point, or is that just a fun thing to talk about? <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I hope so. I think so, but I, I don't think it's some dramatic inflection point. I think that's really hard with businesses that are just so steeped in in the past. Although we're seeing people go out of business and going bankrupt and reorganizing and becoming licensed and all that, I, it's anything like this is a is a moment of opportunity. But I I do think it's going to take time. You know, Anna 
Winter had a great quote in that New York Times piece where she basically said, you know, fashion is an industry about newness and change. And yet we as an industry have a lot of problem changing and evolving. And I think it's something great about that the industry that I that I love. It is steeped in tradition and there are elders who we look to, um, uh, both with us and, and not, you know, Coco Chanel is on the tips of everybody's tongue still and Carl after that. And certainly Anna just is an incredible force. You know, as we're wrapping up here, I'd love to just hear as you're looking to next year, you mentioned profitability is a priority. What are your predictions for the fashion industry at large? Um, you're coming off of, of a year where, you know, if you had been in a different category, things might have been very different. But um, it, fashion overall, it's it's having this existential crisis almost. Uh, what do you think comes next? The big question is, is there going to be a permanent shift in values with the customer and how they buy clothes and how they think about fashion and style and luxury goods and all that? And how will we adjust to it? I don't think next year we're going to see that much difference, honestly. I think as we come out of it, who knows? I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. The trip and the challenge with what we do, even us being quite an agile direct-to-consumer company, I just started working on fall 21, right? That's what we have to do in our industry because we, you know, if you're developing anything new and we develop all of our fabrics, which takes the longest. So I'm already having to like, predict the future to some extent. And it's kind of maddening. And I'm risk averse for this company. So I'm going to do what I did this fall, which is just stick to what I know and draw some dotted lines to some things that I connect to that really well that don't take too much money to develop and too much time and resources because we're such a small little company. Yeah. And it seems just to just to build on that really quickly, it seems like fashion will only become increasingly customer-led which I think, you know, it, it sounds kind of common sense now, but, you know, for a while it was a very top-down industry. Is that something you see continuing in it and becoming even more so is, is just, you know, designers will be playing into what customers want. It's almost this democratization of fashion is more for, for everyone. Yeah, I, I think, listen, I, I, we just, there's, the gatekeepers have to reassert themselves, and that's a separate conversation. And I think there's a place for stores. There's a place for Vogue, like which is one of the biggest brands in the world. It's like a Coca-Cola, as far as I see it. You know, it's Ford, it's it's Apple. It's a you know, there's a place for that. I think in terms of fashion and the relationship between brands and consumers, it's just it's it's direct. I don't think it's necessarily from there always going to be this. What do they want? What do they want? Let's look at the data. Part of the industry operates that way. I think it's just going to be more of a dialogue. I think one of the wonderful things I've always loved about fashion is that you can uh, assert, you know, with confidence uh, visually what you what somebody should wear, and uh, if they're part of your tribe, like they're gonna they're gonna try that out. They're gonna trust you. Um, and that's cool. And I don't think that's going to go away. I just think it's going to come just right from the brand as opposed to being filtered through all that other stuff. And it will still be filtered through all that other stuff. Because I'll tell you, you know, say what you will about influencer culture. We're very, very niche in terms of influencers we work with. And we really don't pay. We just gift. We don't have the resources to do a lot of that. But, man, it's incredible 
it's incredible uh, how the right influencer with the right product at the right time can affect sales. It is just mind-blowing. So that says to me there, there is room for gatekeepers or influencers, editors, you know, guides, consumer guides in between. And the traditional gatekeepers would benefit from stepping back with humility and kind of understanding how not to adjust what they do to be like an influencer, but to kind of understand the power of that. And the power of that, like to a woman in the Midwest who has a certain body type and a certain, you know, sort of set of aesthetic references and who needs help figuring out what to wear every day and wasn't getting that from the gatekeepers, the stores or the magazines, and is getting that from this network of women who had built a pretty impressive cottage industry. All right, that's a perfect way to run off this episode. Thank you, Scott, for joining me. Of course, thanks for having me anytime. We will be back next week, so join us again to hear from those in fashion adjusting their roadmaps to reflect an industry in flux. You can subscribe to this series on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion, subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter at voguebusiness.com. Our executive producer was Alad John. My name is Hilary Milnes. That was the future of fashion. Thank you for listening.